Good evening. Biden says he'll give America the unvarnished truth. And Governor Cuomo says the same. An insider look into the New York City schools in the age of COVID and a police report. Is it more of the same? With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Friday, March 12th, 2021. The city of Minneapolis on Friday agreed to pay a $27 million settlement for a lawsuit by the family of George Floyd after his death in police custody. Floyd, a 46-year-old black man, died in May as Derek Chauvin, a white Minneapolis police officer, kneeled on his neck for nearly nine minutes. Benjamin Crump, an attorney for the Floyd family, said the agreement with the city was the largest pretrial settlement of a wrongful death lawsuit in United States history. It is my great honor to announce that George Floyd's family, our legal team, and the city of Minneapolis and its leaders have settled the civil lawsuit in the death of George Floyd. The settlement is not just historic because of the $27 million paid out but for the impact on social justice, policy reforms, and police reforms, because the financial compensation most directly impacts George Floyd and his family, the future of their family. But it is the policy reforms that affects all of us. And many would say that's why the George Floyd Act, whether it's here in Minneapolis, Mayor Fry, or the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, Councilman Ellison, that is being contemplated in Washington, D.C., it impacts all of us. All of us. And that's why this is so historic and significant. Crump went on to praise the city of Minneapolis for their action and called for calm. We urge everybody to practice responsible leadership in remaining calm and engaging in peaceful protests for George Floyd and reflecting the same humanity of the man that we are remembering and honoring today. Benjamin Crump, an attorney for the Floyd family. The trial of Derek Chauvin, who was fired by the police force, began earlier this week in Hennepin County's district court on charges of murder and manslaughter. Chauvin has pleaded not guilty and said he properly followed his police training. The settlement includes a $500,000 contribution from Floyd's family to the community at the Minneapolis intersection where Floyd died. The intersection has been barricaded against police access and is filled with flowers and other tributes to Floyd. The other three officers involved are due to go on trial later this year on charges of aiding and abetting Chauvin in Floyd's death. And the Biden administration hopes to relieve the strain of thousands of unaccompanied children coming to the southern border by ending a Trump-era order that discouraged potential family sponsors from coming forward to care for them. A senior administration official said Friday the Department of Health and Human Services was not a law enforcement agency and that the goal of Friday's announcement was to encourage family members and other sponsors to step forward. 
president has uh, made clear and this administration has made clear that we are going to pursue an effective and humane immigration policy and unwind what we believe was the ineffective and inhumane policy over the course of the last four years. That's point number one. Point number two is we've made clear that now is not the time to come to the United States. We are dealing with a circumstance in which uh, we have to build the capacity to be able to assess the asylum claims of individuals who arrive here, and we have to deal with the obvious public health effects of a pandemic. So we are sending the message clearly, and you heard it from Roberta Jacobson from this podium earlier this week. We're doing so in the region as well. But the president also believes that under our laws, people who are claiming asylum deserve to have their cases heard. Uh, properly, effectively, efficiently, and as swiftly as possible. And that is the policy that we are going to pursue. And the announcement comes as United States authorities saw a 60% increase in children crossing the southwest border alone between January and February to more than 9,400. In related news, the Biden administration is granting temporary deportation relief and work permits to Myanmar citizens living in the United States because of the military's crackdown following the February 1st coup. The decision means about 1,600 Burmese already in the United States, including diplomats who broke Myanmar's junta, will be eligible for temporary protective status, or TPS, for 18 months. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas said the people of Burma are suffering a complex and deteriorating humanitarian crisis in many parts of the country, blaming a brutal crackdown by the military. U.S. officials say unless a military reverse course, more punitive action was likely. And President Joe Biden said today he'd draw on his experiences in 2009 as Sheriff Joe policing the Obama administration's corporate bailout to deliver the same focus he'll need for coronavirus relief. The devil is in the details, the president said, but added, it's the middle class that built America. Bernie and a lot of others are saying the backbone of this country, the backbone of this country are hardworking folks, hardworking folks, middle class folks. People who built the country, and I might add, I think unions built the middle class. And it's about creating opportunity and giving people a fair shot. That's really all and everything it's about. In the coming weeks, Jill and I and Kamala and Doug and our cabinet, with all of you, members of Congress, we're going to be traveling the country to speak directly to the American people about how this law is going to make a real difference in their lives. Those of us who have been around for 100 years like me. You've watched people lose confidence in government, just lose confidence in that we tell the truth. That's why when I announced, I I quoted Franklin Roosevelt. He said, I'll give it to you straight from the shoulder. The American people can handle anything if you tell them the truth. And they really can. Just give it straight from the shoulder. Biden used his role as Sheriff Joe to cut red tape and get the stimulus itself into the economy, says Robert Gibbs, who was Obama's press secretary at the time. Gibbs predicted that Biden would be equally relentless in selling the relief package this time. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York, was on a conference call with the media today. He began by announcing the state and city's most recent COVID numbers. COVID update. Positivity, 3.11%. 74 New Yorkers passed away from COVID yesterday. They are in our thoughts and prayers. Number hospitalized, 4634. Down 101. Lowest number since December 6th. That is great news. 
935 patients in ICU, lowest number since December 7. 639 intubated yesterday, that's down 26. <clears throat> that's good news. Positivity by region. In New York City, take a guess. Bronx, number one, 4.9. Staten Island, 4.8, which is a turnaround. Queens, 4.6. Brooklyn, 4.3. Manhattan, still only 2.82. And Cuomo also announced the state was ready for an increase in COVID vaccines promised last night by Biden in a televised address to the nation. Meanwhile, the governor's political problems continue to grow. Democratic members of Congress who represent New York and Washington lined up today calling for Cuomo to resign, including Representative Alejandro Ocasio-Cortez, the Queens progressive who released a joint statement with freshman Representative Jamal Bowman. Their statement reads, we believe these women, we believe the reporting, we believe the attorney general, and we believe the 55 members of the New York State Legislature, referring to twin investigations mounted by Attorney General Letitia James and the State Assembly. In D.C., House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler also called for Cuomo's resignation, as did Representatives Grace Meng, Nidia Velasquez, Adriano Espaillat, Yvette Clark, Carolyn Maloney, Paul Tonko, and Mondaire Jones. Lawmakers also pointed to questions surrounding the construction of the replacement project for the Tappan Zee Bridge, as well as the scrutiny the governor's office is under for underreporting the number of nursing home residents who died during the pandemic. The embattled governor has said he'll not resign amid mounting calls that he do so. He defiantly repeated his denials today. I never harassed anyone. I never abused anyone. I never assaulted anyone. And I never would, right? Is it possible that I have taken a picture with a person who, after the fact, says they were uncomfortable with the pose in the picture? Yes. That's what you're hearing about. I never took a picture with a person who said I'm uncomfortable and then did it anyway. But yes, I can. I apologized for people who I have taken pictures with and who after the fact said they were uncomfortable with that picture. Cuomo also blamed what he called cancel culture for the turn against him. When asked by a reporter if he had a consensual sexual relationship with any of the women, the governor ducked, saying he won't argue the case in the media. Cuomo had harsh words, though, for politicians who've been demanding his resignation. I won't speculate about people's possible motives, but I can tell you as a former attorney general who's gone through this situation many times, there are often many motivations for making an allegation. And that is why you need to know the facts before you make a decision. There are now two reviews underway. No one wants them to happen more quickly and more thoroughly than I do. Let them do it. Politicians who don't know a single fact, but yet form a conclusion and an opinion are, in my opinion, reckless and dangerous. The people of New York should not have confidence 
in a politician who takes a position without knowing any facts or substance. That, my friends, is politics at its worst. And Cuomo made the case for continuing as governor. He says the state needs him at this dangerous time. I don't think there's a person in a better position to help the state get through this period than the experience that I bring to it. This is not going to be an easy budget to do. I'm telling you that right now. This is not going to be easy to get these vaccinations done. I'm telling you right now. So I think I can be of tremendous help, and I'm focused on my job. The Assembly is focused on their job, and the Senate is focused on their job. I'm confident that if everybody does their job, we'll make, do the best we can. Governor Andrew Cuomo. In breaking news, moments ago, Senator Chuck Schumer and Kirsten Gillibrand also called for Cuomo to resign. It was a change. Both had earlier said an independent investigation was necessary first. And in city news, Manhattan District Attorney Cy Vance will not seek re-election this year. He made the announcement this morning. Vance's office is in the middle of investigating Donald Trump after the Supreme Court decided his office could review Trump's taxes. The decision not to run for a fourth term opens up the job to numerous candidates who want to replace him. And in New York City education news. The 488 public schools of the city will reopen March 22nd, though the majority of students will continue learning from home. High schools and other large districts may not reopen for months. About half of the city's high schools will offer full-time instruction for most or all of their in-person students, while the other half will offer hybrid instruction. But some educators and students say the pandemic has really lost them a year, where learning was carried out in name only. WBAI was invited into a Zoom classroom belonging to a social studies class at Alfred E. Smith High School on East 151st Street in the South Bronx. Economics teacher Pablo Moriel and his student Miguel spoke at length about the reality of in-person, blended, and online teaching. Miguel answered a question from his teacher saying that many students, after trying last year, just gave up. Kids will show up physically to class with you. Maybe like three kids. How many were on Zoom? For your class, maybe like four kids um, or like two, three kids. But in other classes, you would have like maybe 16 kids and only like four kids in the class. What happened to the other kids? What have they um, been doing? Some of them do their work and some of them, they literally just come in for attendance and they do not complete any work. Do you feel you've lost a year of education in this? I mean, that's what it sounds like. I definitely have. I think uh, yes. speaking wise, um, usually you have like, if you need help, you have the teacher who comes around and walks around to help you explain it to you in detail. But now that we're online, you know, you have a whole class there. You can't just talk to one person one on one because that will take too much time. Are you looking forward to going back to school? Are you going to see any of your friends? I'm going to be honest. There was probably only like a couple kids who went back into school that were like close friends of mine. So and now they're they're even thinking about um, going full remote. They don't even want to go back into school because it's so it's so much easier to do it when you're at home because your obligation is really just to show up to class, but you don't have to do any work. You get the impression from the press conferences. Well, it's difficult, but things are are moving along. But what you're saying seems to to not jive with that. Yeah, I, I, I it doesn't. Right. How are you going to look back on this year? 
well, for one thing, the class that I do have to take um, a test for at the end of the year, I would like to, when I go back into school, to definitely, like, even if it's 30 minutes um, a day or, like, 30 minutes whenever I see the teacher, I would like to learn that subject that um, when I was at home, I didn't get fully taught on. So I would like to go back and relearn those lessons. So the questions that I have can then be resurfaced and she can answer them. So a good student is a student who wants to be left back in this atmosphere. Yes, I, I, I would I would say so, yes. Do you blame the virus and that this couldn't have been helped? I blame how they were run because a lot of teachers having to go from to be able to teach in school to then being to then having to be teaching students online. I'm gonna be honest, a lot of teachers did not go through like a curriculum or taught how to use Zoom or Google Meets um, in order to teach virtually. So for certain instances, you would have calls and kids would start doing inappropriate things on the call and they would share their screen. So for teachers to not have been taught how to use these programs that they were gonna be teaching with, you know, that's what made it bad. I can't blame it on COVID or anything. I could only blame it on the system and not being, or for them not teaching teachers how to teach with the with these devices. Miguel went on to describe the different teachers and styles he had to navigate. And Pablo, when he's teaching, he's teaching not only stuff about economics, but he's also teaching us um, stuff that's going on. So like. To start off the class, he'll ask us what were what was our thoughts, or um, did we have any ideas on what's been happening? So he'll bring up maybe like a news article, or he'll bring up something that's happening right now. So I think that's what's working mo- most efficiently is having like good conversation that you would have in class. But you're not having that in every class. No, a lot of them it's just like this. They come in. Good morning. We'll give it two more minutes, and then we'll start. And then once the two minutes are up, we'll literally just start the, the class and he'll, he'll show, he'll show like maybe a slideshow, a presentation, he'll read or she'll read and then maybe she'll ask a question or maybe she'll just continue reading and then that's it for the class. So you log off and this is the work that you have to do. Social studies teacher Pablo Muriel says it was as much a learning experience for teachers when the school system went online he had to learn from his students. I understood that we were in a pandemic. I understand we're still there. And I understand that we had to change very quickly. When this first started, it happened suddenly, but then teachers kind of took over and we just took it all the way to June and it worked out well. And then September started and we started blended and that was pretty decent. And then abruptly they took us out and put us back to remote learning. And then we've been in remote learning the whole time. Now going back to blended. So blended is one day, a couple of days a week in class, and a couple of days a week. It it sounds like that, but no, the way it works is this. I guess it's the most efficient for our current situation. But it's like we do the kids Monday and Tuesday, and then Wednesday and Thursday with the others, and then Friday is advisory, so they can catch up and stuff like that. What happened was when this pandemic occurred. Online, I would get 18, 19, 20 kids. And then when we went blended, I have three or four blended, still about 18, 19 kids. And then we went from blended to fully remote. I stopped even getting those kids on Zoom. They stopped coming. Some of them were still doing work. And then the city says, well, you can't give them an NX if they're doing work. And the teachers have been pushing back on that saying, there's no way I can give a kid a credit if the kid's not doing any work. They don't understand the material. That's the only thing we've gotten from each other. 
It's we meet up in meetings, we have conversations. We try to get feedback on what works and what doesn't, but the city hasn't given any direction at all since the start of it. It was almost like laissez fair. And that's teacher Pablo Moriel. He says computers wasn't all he learned. One thing we learned is that we are very top heavy administratively, and this sort of cuts a lot of the administrative piece out. I don't know why we're still dealing with that. I'm also a good way for the city to help kids that are that have some special needs. I saw a lot of them grow faster because it was like one-on-one instruction face-to-face the whole time. Mm-hmm. And the growth is amazing. So it's something that can incorporate when we come back. But I don't see school being exactly how we left it. I do see something very, very different. I fear that the de Blasio administration doesn't have a handle on this. And I fear what I don't remember, because I'm too young, when they had 70 students in a classroom in the 1970s. I'm hoping we don't go back to something of that nature. And that is a teacher, Pablo Muriel, and his student, Miguel. They spoke to WBAI earlier today from their Zoom classroom at Alfred E. Smith High School in the Bronx. And finally, Mayor de Blasio revealed part two of his plan to reform the New York City Police Department. Police Commissioner Dermot Shea was with the mayor to make the announcement. We've had periods where we are soliciting information from New Yorkers on where we are, what works, what doesn't work, and and most importantly, how do we move forward together as one city? So to all New Yorkers that took part in this process, I say thank you. I also want to thank uh, the members of the NYPD that behind the scenes were a part of this reform initiative and continue to be. And it has been an immense amount of work. We heard a lot from New Yorkers across New York City. We heard good. We heard sometimes bad. And most importantly, we asked the questions and we listened about what do you want? And Mayor de Blasio admitted last June he made his share of big mistakes. I spoke very personally about the mistakes made and I took responsibility for my role as leader uh, needing to do better. I think the Department of Investigation report was very fair and identified a series of areas where I have to do better, the department has to do better, and we are doing that right now. We've been implementing those recommendations aggressively. We agree with them. Kettling, for example, is something that never should have happened, never should happen again, period. And we've been very clear over the last few months that is not an acceptable approach. It will not happen in the future. We learned some very powerful and painful lessons from last year, and I think the work will be very different. Policing will be very different. You're seeing it already in demonstrations around the city. We have real focus on our community affairs officers being the focal point of how NYPD handles protests. Much more limited role, if any role, for SRG. And I think the work of reform that has been going on uh, since last summer the local level, at the state level, at the national level, is being felt. And people see a response to the many, many strong, peaceful protests out there calling for change. They see an honest response. And today's report is that exactly that is part of that honest response. And I think people recognize when their government is listening and acting. Mayor de Blasio, SRG, he mentioned uh, earlier, is the strategic response group, basically the riot cops. 
The police watchdog, Communities United for Police Reform, says the plan works against police reform. In a statement, CPR says instead of reducing police violence or increasing accountability, the report includes proposals that will lead to more funding and tools for the NYPD to co-op social justice practices like restorative justice, more funding for the NYPD to play new roles, allow the continuation of abusive policing in schools by simply moving school safety officers from the NYPD to the Department of Education and promoting fairy tales that the NYPD will police and reform itself. CPR went on to say it's a bad joke that this administration continues to falsely claim that weak paper reforms that have come out of the Floyd stop and frisk monitorship to date represents a fundamental transformation, even though the facts make clear that racial disparities and stops are no different than the Bloomberg era. And that's some of the news for Friday, March 12th, 2021. The news was produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Have a great weekend. Thank you.